0: In this interview, Ken Norman, who was an ex RAF Buccaneer and camera pilot, shares his stories about flying the two types. He includes his squadrons, which are 31, 16 and 208. He also gives a great insight into flying the Buccaneer over at Red Flag at Nellis Air Force Base. So please subscribe and enjoy.
1: My father was in the Air Force, but it never occurred to me to be a pilot. In fact, uh, I went to boarding school and when I was 16, I left after my O-Levels and I joined the Merchant Navy.
0: Can you tell us a
1: bit more about that? Yeah, I did a four-year apprenticeship with Elder Dempster Lines, uh, two years in Liverpool at Riversdale Technical College, doing an OND in marine engineering, and then a year at sea, followed by a year at college again, so it was a four-year apprenticeship.
0: So what happened after that?
1: Well, I I did uh, two trips to sea, the first one down to Nigeria, and uh, the second one to Burma, that's Myanmar now, I think. And Rangoon, I think it's called Yangon now. Um, and I was getting a bit disillusioned, I have to say, with being at sea. It's not what I expected to be. I wanted to travel and see the world and be an engineer, but unfortunately working on an engine with some of the ships I was on was a bit of a nightmare to say the least. So I was looking to uh, for another career, and after my second trip I came back to Shawbury, that's where my father was stationed at the time, Shawbury, and uh, I bumped into an old friend of mine, a young lady, who had a boyfriend with her, a boyfriend of a chap called Kevin Mace, and I asked him what he did, and he said, I'm a pilot in the Air Force. I said, oh really? I said, uh, well, what sort of aeroplanes are you flying? He said, well I'm going through training at Valley at the moment, flying the Nat. So I was quite interested, so I asked him about what the qualifications were for the Royal Air Force, and uh, I dashed off home, got an application from the Air Force, and fired it off. And I put a covering letter in it saying, I'll be back at sea for three months, going back to Burma again. If we get an interview, could I come down after three months? So when I got back after that trip, waiting for me at the, uh, when I got home, was a letter from the airport saying, come along for an interview, for a three-day interview. So I immediately rushed off and bought the Know Your Own IQ uh, book, where you can actually go through all the IQ tests to give you a bit of a heads up for the interview. And I went down to Biggin Hill for three days and it went quite well. I mean, the usual tests, the leadership tests and the IQ tests and the, the coordination tests and finally the interview. And at the interview, they said to me, uh, obviously you want to be a pilot, but what's your second choice? And I said, well, I don't have a second choice. They said, well, you must put a second choice down. So I said, well, my second choice is staying in the Merchant Navy. So uh, I left and went home again. I thought maybe it would have been a bit cheeky there. But anyway, I left and went uh, back to sea again. And I went, uh, this voyage was down to Nigeria, down to Sapoli. And we're picking up Sapoli Pine in Sapoli, loaded on the ship. Well, I got a telex uh, from a father saying, congratulations, Ken, you start the Royal Air Force as a pilot 8th September 1966. So it was superb. You know, there were two things to celebrate there, really. One was that uh, I joined the Air Force. And the other one was that I didn't have to go back to bloody Nigeria again.
0: So, could you tell us when your
1: uh, training started? For it started eighth uh, of September sixty six, and surprisingly, I didn't go to, to uh, South Cerny, which is the initial training school. I went north to Moray Sea School. The um, a, a, a Air Force decided to send me for a month outward bound, which is a bit uh, bizarre, really. I just left the Merchant Navy, and I was going to the Sea School when I joined the Royal Air Force. But I had twenty eight days there, and it was fabulous. You know, it was one of those, you know sort of uh, outward bound that everyone wants to do you know you did uh, sailing we'd get up in the morning in fact we'd get up in the morning six o'clock in the morning and we would uh, run for three miles and then come back for a hearty breakfast then go down the docks and sail the cutter or we'd, uh, in the kayaks or, or the canoes so we'd spend a lot of time down the docks or we'd go up into the hills and we'd be doing mountain climbing we're doing rock climbing abseiling and we spent a bit of time actually uh, walking and camping in the cairngorm so it was incredible 28 days i loved it you know and it was w- well worth doing
0: so could you tell us what aircraft you trained on
1: yes i mean obviously initially did the eight ten week course at south cerny which is just officer training school and then went to uh, church fenton to fly the chipmunk what was that like uh, As intensive course, that was it, was it was thirty hours flying in about thirty days, so you, you flew sometimes three times a day. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a lovely airplane to fly. I mean, initially when you first flew the course, it, of course, it was a bit of a fiddly airplane to land. It was a, 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 tri- a, a tailwheel airplane, so you had to land it in the in a three point attitude. Um, but once you got that hacked and uh, a bit of circuit training, then we we're off doing general handling and the general handling was just generally obviously a bit of steep turns etc but we started doing aerobatics and of course that's when it was a lovely airplane to fly you know loops barrels stall turns it's just a great airplane sarston obviously that's the your wings course and it's about i think it's about 11 months the course was and um it was a lovely airplane to fly. it was a straight airplane all manual controls uh and the course initially of course was was just general handling you you did circuit training and uh, learning to land the aeroplane, which is actually a lot easier to land than the chipmunk. Um, and then, say, upper air work, and then, say, an instant rating, a white rating you'd do. That meant you could fly in all sorts of weathers. And then from there, we started doing navexes, medium level navexes, and then onto formation flying, and obviously onto aerobatics, which I loved. And to me, it is important that uh, you do as much aerobatics as possible because you got streamed a- after, after basic training, either onto uh, oakington which which for was for uh transport aircraft or to valley which is a a fast jet really so in my mind it's important to turn the airplane upside down as often as possible and i remember one of the last trips i did i was flying with standards oc standards and he he briefed me that we'll get airborne and we'll do general handling and we'll do qgh and when we got airborne he said ken what do you want to do i said aerobatics and he says fine and he showed me his aerobatic sequence and then uh, I did mine, and we spent hours doing aer- aerobatics. And when we came to land, he says, where do you want to go, Ken? I said, well, valley. He says, well, we'll see what happens. And so I subsequently got posted to valley. So uh, arrived at valley, which is a great place to be in, uh, in in Anglesey. Uh parked the car and immediately walked down to the end of the runway. I started watching the aeroplanes land. I couldn't believe I'd finally arrived at the valley to fly the NAT. Uh, the course... Uh, Initially, it was a, gr- a lot of ground school. The, the NAT was quite a more complicated airplane; it had power controls and, and uh, hydraulic controls, etc. So we spent a time in the ground school learning about the NAT, and then we did, I think, about ten sessions in the simulator before we flew the airplane. And the NAT was a delight. I mean, you walk out of the airplane, yeah, and as they always said, you don't actually strap into a, strap into a NAT; you actually put it on. And it was like that. It was, it was just a tiny little aeroplane. And the nice thing about it was that it was a tandem seating. So when you got into the aeroplane, you sat there and there was nobody else with you. <laughs> so you always felt that you, you were flying solo. So uh, at the end of the course, uh, I did quite well, I suppose. And I was actually posted onto Harriers.
0: OK. Can you tell us about
1: that? Yeah. Um, yeah, initial posting on Harriers. And a couple of my mates went to, onto Lightnings. But before I left uh, Valley, I was informed that um, the Harrier course had been delayed in, enormously because they had problems with the Harrier. So they said, "Would you do a short, a short course on the on the Canberra?" I said, "Yeah, no problem at all. I Loved it. I'd, I'd been what training then for about three years, so I was quite keen to get on a squadron."
0: Ken chats about flying the English Electric Canberra. So
1: off I went to uh, to uh, to join the, the, the Canberra OCU. Um, a bit of a culture shock, to say the least. It had come from the Nat to the Canberra. Canberra, of course, had no power controls at all. It had, I think, hydraulics for the in the undercarriage, and I think maybe some air brakes, I think. The rest uh, was all manual controls. And uh, I remember the wheel brakes were actually air-driven, I think. They were a strange system. Anyway, the first time I, I got into uh, the T4, you, you'd, you'd go in the T4, which is the one around the corner there, and you'd strap in, and uh, you could see the big bubble canopy. Well, there's a great feeling that when you're in there, because you're to the left hand side of the cockpit, you had your head to one side like this, you know. And then the instructor would get in, and his seat was folding right back, um, and he would pull, pull the seat forward, and then strap in, and then take the, take the uh, p- pins out. And uh, so we, we started the... The engines, and I said the, the brakes on the, on the camber were, were air brakes, so the way you operated the, the brakes, there was no or steering, you would put the rudder on and you'd squeeze the paddle on the on the control wheel, and the brakes would come on and you'd just turn the airplane that way. But it was, it was a bit fierce, and I remember <laughs> taxiing down the taxiway with a head like this, and every time I put the brakes on, we're, we're doing this all the way down the, the taxiway. And I thought to myself kind of steer this bloody thing and he expected to fly it so we we taxed out eventually and got airborne um and it was fabulous you know got airborne it was a delight to fly it was one of those airplanes it was it it was just a gentleman's airplane really a big wing big straight wing airplane manual controls and it was great love flying the canberra
0: so can you tell us a bit about your first flight in the canberra
1: well, so that was the first flight. and In fact, the more interesting fl- flight was about four, four trips later that I explained to you that the instructor gets into the, into the aeroplane and he, he brings his seat forward. But on my fourth trip on the Canberra, I rotated. and As I rotated um, to about 50 feet, the instructor's seat unlocked and it just flew backwards. And I was flying this aeroplane and this, the instructor, was, it was flapping around on, on, on his seat. And uh, it was ashen, you know, because this, this seat was fully armed, it could have gone off. So I, I couldn't do much for him, so I just held the aeroplane and climbed away and he eventually managed to get the, the seat back up and locked in position. I shouldn't laugh because had it gone off, it would have been messy business really, but uh, that was my, my fourth trip in the Canberra.
0: What were your first thoughts of the Canberra? Like, did you like it? Yeah, it
1: was, it was different. It was, you know, I'd come from the that and it was a totally different aeroplane. We flying the aeroplane was manual controls, which, of course, manual controls, it's a bit more stiff on the controls and, and you, you can't do as much with the aeroplane. Obviously, it's not as manoeuvrable as, as a Nat, etc. So, but no, for what it was, it was a great aeroplane. And uh, I went solo on it um, and then joined it with my nav, Nobby Clark, and then we did a lot of flights together. It was just low level, really. It was getting the guy in the back who it would get airborne, and then he'd crawl into the nose of a B two and would do exits around the UK. Um, so yeah, it was it was great fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: So how long did you spend on the horse
1: I think about four months, probably four or five months. Uh, yeah, it was about four or five months, uh, um, and it was just concentrated flying the whole time at Condesmore. Uh, so I loved it.
0: So how long did you? Um, how many times did you fly a week, for instance?
1: I think probably two or three times a week. Probably I think I can't remember the hours. I think we did about sixty, seventy hours on the Canberra, probably on the OCU uh, before we left to go to uh, to Germany.
0: So after the OCU, where did you get posted to?
1: Uh, I, I was posted to Thirty One Squadron in, in RAF Germany. So I, I, pil- I piled on my my bags into my. Mark 1 Frog Eye Sprite and headed off for Germany. I had no maps or like that, I just headed for Germany. So I went across the channel and arrived in Germany and I eventually found Larbrook and checked in the officer's mess. So
0: what was the role
1: of 31 Squadron? <clears throat> 31 Squadron was obviously a, a, a recce squadron and I suppose photo, photo, photographic reconnaissance squadron. Um, I suppose there were three roles. There was a low-level photographic role and then there was a medium-level sort of vertical photography role which is sort of a, a mapping survey role and then there was a, a night flashing role which was actually night photography so those are the three roles well we'd take off say from i'll, I'll go through a, a sort of typical trip really we'd we'd take off from, from larbrook and we'd be would have planned a target and the targets generally not as a target but in area to to to, to photograph and we're either doing bridges, you know, or, or locks or missile sites or, or, or troops on the ground. So what you'd do, you would get airborne and then you'd fly over the, the target, say troops on the ground. Um, and, and when you went, flew over the target, you'd obviously photograph it. At the same time, you'd take a mental picture in your mind of what you, you saw um, at the time. Obviously you do that for simple reason, the cameras might fail uh, or you might get battle damage, so you may not have the photographs when you get back. So when you land, landed back at Larbrook, the crews would meet the, the ground liaison officer, who was an, an army guy, and you'd do what to call it a VISREP, a visual report, and you'd sit down, you'd write down what you saw. And it's obviously fairly easy if you're doing bridges and locks and things like that. But once you get into the into the field and you look at the army, it's quite a complex uh, pictures you take in your mind you, you can have tanks, you can have all sorts of various vehicles there, and you have to identify those vehicles and put them on your VisRep so you'd fill your VisRep in and then the photographs would go off to the MUFPU, the MUFPU was the mobile field photographic unit, number three photographic unit and and you have PIs there and they'd, they'd develop the photographs and uh, they'd look through the, the 3D scopes and they could see exactly what's on the ground and then they would, they would actually look at your VisRep and assess it against the photograph, and you were marked. So you so you, 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 you me what percent, you know, how, how right and wrong you were. After that, the guys, some of the guys there, you know, like Mike Chambers and the guys like that, they were they were they're sharp cookies. They'd come back and they, they'd have great marks. But I was just starting out with Nobby, you know, and we were pretty amateur at it really. <laughs> but we did better as time went by. We got better and better and better. But I say it was only a year on the squadron, so we didn't have time to really up to a really high standard like a lot of the guys there who were who were on the squadron.
0: So, can you tell us what it was like to fly the camera? Some of its good characteristics, bad characteristics.
1: What a very stable aeroplane! You know, it's a, uh, we used to fly at two hundred and seventy knots, right? Two seventy knots, like that. Um, and really, I suppose you're limited to, that, to the height you flew at. You could get low. You took a lot of happy snaps down at 50 feet, you know, but obviously the Canberra, you know, you're going past the target faster, then the image is not going to be the same. You're going to get a bit blurring and there's no image stabilisation at all on the camera. So if you're taking photographs, you're taking them generally above 250 feet because you want the, a wider field of view, especially with troops on the ground. Um, and generally uh, for the low level side of it would take it for the, the left hand camera the, the oblique camera the F95 on the left hand side and on the, on the side of the, of the, the camera there would be a charting mark which you would just run down so you get your target basically the channel mark would try and put your target a third of the way up the, of the photograph and that's that's what you do very, very high tech <laughs> but the nav um, you know the nav obviously he, he, when you get airborne um, he's in the back and then he crawls down the front. It was always good fun. As he crawled down the front, You just bunt over and you would come up like this. Guy. But uh, then he'd cl- crawl down the front and he'd navigate, obviously, with a map on the front and uh, he'd take the target. He'd, he'd give you directions left, right, da-da-da. You'd have a map yourself, but he'd have a map and he'd take the target.
0: So I've heard, because it's quite a big aircraft, uh, was it quite manoeuvrable? <laughs> I've heard stories that it is. But it, it is, now. yeah.
1: I mean, I remember I got grounded on the first... Three months on the squad, and, I, and my mate Jerry, eight, uh, Jerry Dent, sorry, was uh, flying at Canberra, and I, I came up alongside him. I pulled up in front of him. And I did a, a barrel right around in front of him like that. Unfortunately, it wasn't Jerry. It was the boss. <laughs> <laughs> so he dragged me in, and he said uh, he gave me a, a telling off, and uh, he grounded me for two weeks. Oh dear. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably a good lesson because I mean, you you, you couldn't mess around with a camber. It, it wasn't it wasn't a fighter. Yeah. And you know, a friend of mine sadly was, was killed doing a wing over. He, he he tried to do a bounce on something and he pulled up. It was very, very heavy and he he just stalled in. And was killed. So yeah, it probably did me a good actually to be, to be grounded for a while. But nothing worse than me overconfident.
0: So did you ever get bounced by other fighters and to test your skills? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it got bounced. There was a classic one. We used to do high-level exercise as well. And there used to be starfighters there, and they'd come up alongside you. And uh, the starfighter, as he came alongside you, as soon as he came alongside you, you close the throttles, of course, mm. because the counter is big, weighing to sit there. And the starfighter, the nose would come up, the nose would come up. Eventually, you'd see the reheat come on you as <laughs> far out as he, as he uh, stopped himself stalling.
0: So, uh, how high and fast could the fly?
1: I don't know we're up to 35,000 feet, you know. I don't know what, 7, 7, I, I can't remember now, really. It's 45 years ago, you remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, we, generally, when we're flying high level, it was just burning holes in the sky. Yeah. We used to do you know, basic training requirements, so we had to get the hours in, so we'd be up flying around, especially at night, just doing the routes at night. So, yeah, about 35,000 feet, I suppose.
0: So, how many variants did you fly?
1: Uh, the obviously, T, uh, the uh, T4 and the B2 and the, the PR7. Now, on one trip uh, we were low level and, and the, uh, the oil pressure fell to zero so we had to shut the right engine down. Oh and, the, <laughs> and, the, and the camera's notorious for uh, on, on single engine work. The, the problem was he was a teacher when he came around final turn. He used to bring the speed back quite a lot towards VMCA. Uh, and of course if, if speed dropped, you could actually get a situation where if you put power on, the airplane would flick. And it's a bit like the Meteor. At the Meteor, they lost a lot of airplanes practicing single-engine work. And I actually lost a friend subsequently about five years later who was practicing asymmetric work, single-engine work, and the airplane flicked in. So you got to be very careful. So on that occasion, I just came on finals, a bit fast to say at least. <laughs> you know, about 100 feet, closed both, both uh, throttles and just lid on the runway about 2,000 foot down and just rolled to a stop so that's my only time I had an engine fail on a Canberra but it was an interesting exercise
0: Right we're here with uh, 779, did you ever fly that?
1: Yes uh, I flew I think 30 hours on on 779 Um, just the normal low level recce around Germany really Um, with my nav uh, Nobby Clark
0: Could you tell any missions you actually or sorties that you flew with 779?
1: Uh, there were two sorties, uh, I flew 779, and it was towards the end of uh, my flying on, on uh, the 31st squadron, and they were both uh, army in the field. So uh, you know, the first one was just uh, flying through uh, the, the uh, training area, photographing the army, and, as I said before, doing a visrep And the second time, um, it was more of a flyby. So we were able to fly well over the army about 50 feet. And, and catching them all out having the dinner or whatever <laughs> and photographing at the same time and I've got some pictures, I think Darren's got some pictures of uh, the army sitting in the field having the lunch so they're the two ones I remember I looked at my logbook before I came and they're the two ones I remember
0: So what happened after you left the camera?
1: <clears throat> well I was, I was posted on to Buccaneers so I went from uh, Larbrook to Honington but you don't actually start flying the, the Buccaneers straight away and uh, after a few weeks in Honington I was sent down to Chivener and Chivna is a place that every uh, potential fast, fast jet pilot wants to go. It's, it's a, a fabulous uh, airfield. It's down near Barnstable. Uh, super weather factor. You've got uh, weapons ranges across the Bristol Channel at Pembrey, And you have the air weapons ranges just to the uh, southwest of Chivna. And, of course, the most important thing, is an airfield full of hunters.
0: <laughs> Ken chats about flying the Hawker Hunter.
1: So, uh, Chivena, you know, it's a, a pretty hard school. I mean, it's a, uh, a place where a lot of ex-hunter guys were there teaching you to fly the aeroplane. very experienced hunter guys, QFIs. And uh, they took no prisoners, so you know, it's a course whereby you had to pass and you had to set a reasonable standard. So, arrived there and did the normal ground school, and we did a bit of, I think, it was a procedure training on the hunter. And then uh, my first flight on the Hunter was in a T7. T- and I flew with this uh, instructor, who was a bit of an oddball. And we got there in the runway, and he said, uh, Ken, you used to fly the camera, did you? I said, yes. He said, well... And he re- reached over, and he switched the flying controls off, the hydraulic flying controls off. And he says, well, then, this is j- just be like flying a Canberra. So my first ever takeoff in a Hunter was in manual. And I always remember rolling down the runway and pulling back on the stick and it was a bit like trying to fly the, the local council bin lorry you know it was really heavy on the controls and this guy thought it was funny totally funny so we'll airborne of course he put the flying controls back on and the powered flying controls back on again I immediately started over controlling because it was so twitchy and he raised the gear and, and the, the flaps and off it went you know he thought it was funny he had his he enjoyed himself, but uh, I, I think they, they were a bit uh, sceptical about uh, Canberra pilots coming onto the Hunter and, and passing the course. So I, I got the message there that you know, we're going to have to do a good job to pass the course. That's for sure. Uh, so, so go on.
0: So, what was it like to fly? Because obviously
1: everyone loves the Hunter. Well, the Hunters is the, 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 the jet-powered uh, Spitfire. You know, it's what yeah. everyone wants to fly. It's it's the it was a fabulous set. It looked good, you know, and it, and it, it flew as a fighter should. Uh, so we'd do the uh, thing pound the circuit once you'd been sold I think we 'd solo in, in an F-6 and then we'd start doing more interesting work which is uh, weapons work and we'd go over to Pembrey Range and we'd be either flying SNEB rockets or we'd, we'd be firing the, uh, the uh, Aidan cannons on the targets there or we'd go up um, to air-to-air firing and you'd have a, a hunter with a big, big long rope on the back of it with a flag on the back of it and you'd sit up on the perch, the aeroplane said you'd sit on the perch and you, you'd dive down and you just fire at the flag. And all the shells you had were all colour-coded, so red, orange, whatever, so that when they landed, they'd lay the flag out on the on the tarmac and you'd count the number of um, of uh, shells that, that, that went through. That well, it was, I had the feeling that, that, being a camera pilot, they painted all my shells with, uh, <laughs> with varnish because <laughs> it never seemed to hit the flag. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, it was all a bit of fun so yes uh, once we've done that then we, I flew the, the 9 and then we did some, a lot of low level obviously and I flew the FR10 so it was a great it was a great time you know they were, it was a hard school and uh, yes it, it, I lost a few friends who, who failed the course but I thoroughly enjoyed it and the most important thing it, it was down near Barnstable I had a great time flying in the aeroplane I had a great great social life down there as well so it, it was great fun and then when we finished that week I came out to Honington.
0: So how many hours did you get on the hunter?
1: 30, 30, something like thirty, forty 30, 40 hours on the Hunter, probably like that, you know. So it's quite good because, I, in fact, I flew the Hunter. And then, subsequently, when I actually went on the squadron, so I ended up flying the Hunter on the squadron as well because you had a Hunter T7A, which was a, had a Buccaneer flight incident system in it. So I ended up flying that as well.
0: Ken chats about flying the Blackburn Buccaneer, including stories from Red Flag.
1: So after Chivner, I went back to Huntington again and, and started the ground school on the on the Buccaneer. Uh, the ground school, I think, it was two or three weeks, whatever. And then, because there's no no twin stick Buccaneer, just a nav in the back there. There's no stick in the back. We'd do um, something like I think, 12 or 13 simulator rides. They had a full mission simulator there, which we'd actually use. So we'd do 12 or 13 simulator rides first. And from there, we'd go and fly the Hunter T7A, which is a which is a Hunter T7 with uh, a Buccaneer flight instrument system in it, and we'd do three trips and that just to get used to the, the flying the airplane around with that instrument system after that then with the first trip in the buccaneers with, with a, a qfi in the back and uh, uh, the guy in the back of the uh, buccaneer for me was tom eels you probably heard his name We referred to as mr buccaneer who had done everything in the buccaneer uh, including eject he had to eject with his navigator doing exactly the same sort of exercise uh, up at Lossiemouth, Mouth and him and the Navigator ejected anyway so the first Buccaneer trip was with Tom Mills in the back lovely guy and he, he was just very kind and spoke very gently in the back there didn't raise his voice surprisingly <laughs> because the Buccaneer could be a, a bit of a pig in the circuit uh, so we did a circuit and landed and it was all fine so that was the first trip in the Buccaneer really but Tom Mills did, did a lot of the, uh, the, the first trips in Buccaneers sitting in the
0: back do you tell us like how long your training lasted for, and what does
1: it entail? Uh, training, I think the training was about six or seven months. I think we did about uh, sixty or seventy hours in the airplane. Some of that, yes. First of all, of course, you yes, sir, you flew with Tom. You did your first first flight, and then you would uh, fly with the, the staff navigators. who were very experienced guys. Uh, so you'd go off and do weapons, weapons, etc. Uh, with those guys there. And then you crew it with, with your own navigator. And I crewed it with my nav, Les Gibson, who I flew with uh, in total over the next few years, 380 times. So it was, it was a lot of... You know, once you crewed it with someone, you stay with them, and that was your constituted crew. So that's what we did. We, we spent a lot of time together flying low-level navexes up and down the, the east coast of the UK. We used to drop bombs at Waynefleet, Fleet, Cowden Range... Uh, up to Tane Range occasionally, and Holbeach Range down south. So we did a lot of weaponry, uh, or dropping bombs uh, on the east coast, and of course a lot of navigation. And the, the Buccaneer really was designed for the navy. It was designed effectively to, to toss a nuclear weapon onto a Sverdlov cruiser, you know. And so the, the navigation and the weapon system, the integrated weapon system, was designed really for that in mind. So. The navs were superb. They, they adapted the system and they got used to the system for going overland. And it, it was, it was, it was a, a, a satisfactory system, but they, uh, they had to interpret it all the time. Yeah, uh, the, instead of an inertial nav system, they had a master reference gyro, that's it, which, which powered the, the weapon system. And it tended to uh, slip and, and whatever, so it wasn't as accurate as you would expect an inertial nav to be. So the navs were superb. They interpreting the information. And, of course, they used to use a map uh, all the time as well for the target runs. So that was it we, we did a lot of what they called uh, saps which is a, a simulated, simulated attack profile, which is where you do you'd plan the attack obviously not draw weapons but you'd simulate the won't dropping your weapons
0: so when you first stepped into the cockpit, how did it differ to the camera
1: <laughs> well first of all you know it you weren't seen to one side of the the uh, Airplane and the view is actually superbly the, the, the nose drops away in front of you So you can see down in front the nav, of course He's sitting to one side so he can see down the front as well. So it's a vastly different Airplane obviously the camera big straight with airplane with no power controls and the buccaneer was fully power-controlled So it was a vastly different airplane and a vastly different power as well The engines of the uh, spray engines on the buccaneer were a lot more powerful than the Avons on the Canberra
0: so- could you tell us a bit about your time on the OCU? What did, what, what did it involve that a day in a life would be great?
1: Well, a day in a life on the OCU really was when you arrived to work, as a, as a crew, you'd be given a task to do. Uh, my name now Les Gibson. So you'd sit down and, and plan the task, which would be uh, planning it on a map. And, and uh, when you're doing SAPs, you'd be doing, plan a, a target uh, IP, initial point to target run. And you both have a, have a copy of the map. And then you get airborne and you fly the profile Uh, Low level, uh, or high level, then then low level, and then come back to Honington for full debrief with the the uh, instructors back at Honington.
0: So, what happened after the OCU? Where did you get posted to? Um,
1: From the OCU, uh, I was posted to Sixteen Squadron, and uh, when I arrived there, of course, there was no no aeroplanes on Sixteen Squadron. Uh, The uh, Sixteen Camera Squadron had shut down and they're yeah, just a, an empty hangar really so for about three months we just prepared the hangar ready for the aeroplanes to arrive um, I think it was three or four months we just planned briefing rooms and we had to set up NBC facilities nuclear, biolog- biological and chemical facilities so that we could actually operate in a wartime environment so all that was set up for the aeroplanes arriving in about, was it, 1972? I think it was 72, 72, yeah
0: did their thought scare you, the whole nuclear thing, and you might have
1: to drop a bomb? Or <clears throat> no, not really. I mean, the whole point about nuclear deterrent was that, uh, you know, a nuclear weapon is a weapon of last resort. So, you know, we never thought we were ever going to have to actually drop the weapon, the idea being that we were a very effective squadron, and we were very effective at what we were doing, and that was the deterrent. That was the whole point about it, really. So, what was the role of 16 Squadron? <clears throat> well, uh, we just mentioned really that the, the 16 Squadron the, the, the Buccaneer obviously had a, a strike capability when we, we tend to, revert to refer to strike as the nuclear side of it, uh, nuclear strike capability and the, the weapon we used on the Buccaneer was a WE-177 weapon, nuclear weapon uh, with a, a yield of about 10 kilotons if I remember rightly which is about half the size of the bomb was dropped on, on Nagasaki uh, so We would actually, the idea would be that we'd fly into the target and about four miles uh, before the target we would do a toss attack and we would lob the nuclear weapon uh, towards the target and it would be on a a parachute or on a retarded and the idea was being that the the weapon would uh, be an airburst. An airburst meant that the, the fireball doesn't touch the ground, so it's, as a tactical weapon, it means that the fireball goes up and you get very little uh, residual, residual fallout. So, that in theory, obviously it would never happen, in theory, not, the area is not being contaminated with the radioactive fallout so you actually, your troops could actually go straight through and that's why they were able to build Nagasaki and Hiroshima so quickly Is because it was an airburst and whilst it devastated a terrible devastation there wasn't a lot of residual radiation if you look the think about Chernobyl there was a lot of fallout from the, the reactor there that's, that area now is unusable for years and years and years so that's what an airburst was, it, it, was a, it was a terrible weapon don't get me wrong it was a you know, the the bursts from the the, uh, the weapon, obviously there's a massive fireball and there's radiation from the fireball and the fireball will go upwards but the, the blast will go down, it's like a tennis ball it hits the ground and the bottom of the, fireball, bottom of the uh, blast would go upwards again, so you'd get a, an outward movement of the the blast wave and a reflected blast wave as well, so uh, when it hit the ground, it'd just wipe out anything. Yeah. So uh, it was a devastating weapon, and that's why it was such a good deterrent. I mean, the, the thought of chucking one of those nuclear weapons at uh, targets, you know, troops or whatever on the ground were just devastating, so kept the peace. You know, that's what it is. And that's the whole point of deterrence, really.
0: So, Ken, were there any incidents
1: on 16 Squadron? Well, we used to fly low around uh, Germany all the time, obviously, and uh, most of our flying was um, doing SAPs, as I said before, simulated attack profiles. Um, so we would fly a target... Um, Attack the target, uh, dive attack, and often we'd then leave that target and we'd then fly through Nordhorn range and drop some bombs. So our, our whole life was generally flying around uh, Germany low level between 250 knots, 250 feet, and 500 feet, generally about 200 feet, 250 feet. Um, and we'd use Nordhorn range, and what we used to do, of course, we'd have a time on target. So you'd do your SAPS, and then you, you'd have a, what we call a first run attack. So you'd fly through Nordhorn range at a time. So um, I, was, I was flying all level with Les Gibson, and we, we were a bit behind time for our first run attack. And we, we got up to about uh, 540 knots, about 200 feet. And we, we hit a crane. <laughs> How did <do> you do? <laughs> yeah, not that sort of crane with a hook on the end, but a, a crane that was oh, doing this. You know, trying to avoid the aeroplane, yeah. you know, but he went straight on the right-hand engine, and the engine just stopped. So we, uh, we returned to, to Larbrook, and it's not like a Canberra. The, the Buccaneer is fairly easy to fly on one engine, plenty of power, there's no asymmetric problem at all. I went back to Larbrook and uh, landed there. Uh, obviously, an engine change. There wasn't much left of the engine, really, so it, was, it almost t- totally destroyed the engine.
0: And the crane's is not small, though. Is it? It's not. You know, <laughs> it went. It
1: actually dented all the intake as well as it went in with its its yeah, wings yeah. out like this. Yeah, yeah. Was
0: it aircraft savable, or was it just the
1: engines that It was just the engine. yeah, That's just it. changed, changed the engine, the spare. Yeah, yeah. I left Germany, RAF Germany, and we went to uh, uh, to two eight squadron, uh, and I joined it with my navigator, John Broadbent, um, and we say so we joined two eight squadron. And, and the role of two eight squadron, two eight squadron, was totally different to Germany. As I said before, Germany was a very defined role. Uh, Eight Squadron there were, is, is the northern theatre of, of NATO and you're really looking at the northern Denmark and then Norway all the way up Norway up the Kola Peninsula um, so we, we weren't really uh, sort of having an interdiction role really we were really more of an airfield denial role um, if you can think about it uh, Norway is a long way away so it's very difficult for, for Eight Squadron to actually operate in Norway so what we would do, we would actually obviously operate in the UK and you go to Norway. But to, to, to go to Norway, of course, you need to refuel. And that's where the, the tanking came into it, air-to-air refueling. So on two-eighths, we'd start off, we'd go off uh, initially and we would j- join the, the tanker. A uh, tanker, Victor Tanker, uh, you'd, you'd sit on station, you're doing a, um, um, a standard racetrack pattern. Uh, uh, the tanker would, and we'd just join up on the left-hand wing, and then we'd drop down behind the tanker. And then, obviously, with the, the probe here, there's the effect of the of the nose uh, uh, on the, the basket of the of the tanker. So what we'd do, you'd actually you'd come up behind the, 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 the drogue, and you'd put the, the probe there in about the one o'clock position. Then you'd move forward. As you move forward, the airflow over the nose of the aeroplane would, would push the the uh, drogue up, and you just plug in. When you're plugged in, you'd actually then move forward. I think there was a band, it was a red band or green band, a red band, which you would move forward until the red band went into the um, refuelling pod. And once you got it, the red band was in the refuelling pod, the fuel would start flowing. So you actually flew along, maintaining that distance so the fuel flowed. And then you'd pull off and then the other guy would come out and refuel. Um, It it was (laughs) never a relaxing exercise. We don't do enough of it, really. And, of course, is it, it, it fairly easy when the guys were flying straight and level on the racetrack, but, of course, they'd say, clear to join in the turn. So the, the Victor Tank was in a turn like that, so you'd actually join in the turn, which was always interesting, of course. And once we'd achieved uh, doing it in the daytime, we would end up then doing it at night. Uh, it was always good for an exercise, doing tanking was at night. Scary, though. Scary was, was yeah, the right yeah. word for it, because you'd, you'd go off at night, a uh, uh, gin-clear night, you'd have the stars above you, you'd have the North Sea O-Rigs beneath you, so there were lights everywhere and they'd say clear to join the turn so you're, you're joining the bloody turn and you're, you're in like this and you're, you've got the stars up there and the stars down here and you'd, you'd come in and join and plug in get your fuel and then when you came out of course the dis- it's enormously disorientating you know, because you've got the clear skies and, and the, the lights beneath you and you pull off and then drop back but uh, night, night refuelling was uh, an interesting exercise I didn't
0: have to do that uh, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> terrifying
1: you can tell i a pilot, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so you also operated the Buccaneer in Red Flag. How did this happen?
1: Well, what happened was that uh, I was on 2 eight squadron and uh, John Robin, John Broadbent and I uh, were asked to go on to the QWI course, which is a pretty... Uh, pretty comprehensive course on the Buccaneers. It's a very, a very difficult course, a very pedantic course. It's a course whereby you, you're expected to do, have to perfection the whole time with, with your briefings and your board work, your briefings, your debriefings, and your flying, all the rest of it. So it's, it's a throwback to the Navy. It's a, a, an incredibly difficult course to do. Well, I, I was on the QWI course with John, and, and 208 Squadron was, was sent out to Red Flag. And because they were going out to Red Flag, we, the QWI course was attached to 208 Squadron to go out to Red Flag. Uh, so we flew out uh, uh, with them to uh, to uh, Nellis Air Force Base, and we as we operate a, a different unit really. There, there were there were eight of us. There was two instructors, and there was three pairs. I said so I was I was lucky. I was, my name John Broadbent. So we arrived out in in Red Flag, and of course the Americans couldn't believe it. <laughs> These buccaneers arrived over there, and they looked pretty archaic compared with you know the F-15s, the F-16s, even the F-5s. You know the, the Americans are like so, um, and of course they they got quickly got uh,
0: aware
1: of the fact it was called the banana bomber. So they they loved calling it the banana bomber. Do you know why it's called the banana bomber? Is because it, it looks kind of like? A no, that's, that's where people get wrong. Oh, it, it's actually when it was designed, it, it was called the Blackburn Naval Aircraft, the BNA. Then it became the Blackburn advanced naval aircraft, the B-N-A-A, BNA so then the BNA bomber Barna bomber, banana bomber that's how it came about, so it you, nothing to do with <laughs> a bloody banana, so anyway that's the way it is uh, so yeah, so a, a red flag and um, you know, a very intense intense, uh, I think two or three weeks he was there, uh, I think a lot of people have heard about it, the Buccaneers flying low level and doing well but i i don't think the story is ever been really told that it's only half the story of what what you know flying low level and the other half the story is, is is the navigators the, the navigators are superb you know they made red flag and and I'll, I'll just go through and explain to you sort of a, a typical mission if you like i'll do it go through that um we'd arrive in the morning We'd be beginning our task say we're given an airfield attack say, uh, tossing a, uh, a thousand pounder, tossing a stick a thousand pounds. we only toss one tossing a thousand pounder something coming through for a laid out attack then a couple of guys doing a, a couple of dive attacks uh, to take out the infrastructure the laid out attack would try and take out the runway, laying a stick of bombs down, so you'd plan you'd plan, the, you'd plan the, uh, the, the, the coordinated attack and the coordinated attack relied enormously on, on the timeline is that you? You pick your, your, your IPs for the t- for the target, and obviously you want to try and come in different directions to, to confuse the enemy. And then you'd work backwards. You know, you you, you obviously you, you can work in a few timing points where you can delay or pick up time, whatever. And then you you work the route back. So we would be planning that. We'd plan the route. The nav my nav would plan the route, and would we'd, we'd delegate the other navigators. To plan their uh, IP to target, I, uh, if I was leading the formation, would prepare the briefing, etc. And then we would brief the mission. We'd brief what we're going to do, and then walk out the airplanes, and get airborne. Get airborne in two pairs, and <clears throat> we'd fly uh, to the the uh, exercise area at about five ten thousand feet. I don't know what it was in battle formation, and then we'll descend into the, into the tactical area, and we'll descend low level, say that to about. feet initially and as we came towards, we were flying over the desert, flat desert as we came to the the, the cap area where you've got a combat air patrol in front of you, we descend down to about 10 feet, something like that about 550 knots Uh, but we found that that, at that height we were actually leaving dust trails a bit so we just climbed up a bit to 20 feet, something like that too so we didn't leave any dust trails so We'd, we'd, we'd see the cat, we'd see the aeroplanes and, and you couldn't, at 20 feet they couldn't touch you really, you couldn't get a gun to kill with a lead on, the, on a gun and a missile, even if it's fired you, it probably hit the ground before it hit you anyway, so they, they couldn't get a kill at any time, the, the fighters on, on the Buccaneers, so as I said you, they the navigating the battle course, they were monitoring all this, we're going high speed, 540 knots and they were running the timeline, they're keeping an eye on the, the time on the target, we had a time on target, we had to make the time on target and when we got the target, we had to have spacing on the target, you had thirty-second seconds spacing say on, you toss the weapon, then you'd have somebody coming through and you lay down 30 seconds later, so the time was, it was crucial really, for the attacks so anyway, we would we, uh, progress along the desert, and then we came up towards the hills there, and the, the fighters would expect us to, to if that was the hill there, would, to, to climb up and push over the top like that and the, the fighter would come down behind and try and get a sky shot, you were actually skyline it it, they would try and get a sky shot like that but the Buccaneer didn't, buccanee didn't do that. The Buccaneer would come up to a hill, that was a hill. instead of skying out, the Buccaneer would just come up the hill and go to the top, about 50 feet over the hill, and pull down the valley there, so pulling about 4 or 5 G over the top, down into, in, into the valley, and this is where the Navigators, again, they were superb, you know, keeping pace of what was going on, because the, the kit in the back wasn't wonderful, the Nav Kit, uh, as I mentioned before, it was designed uh, you know, for the Navy, really, so key uh, the lead navigator would be keeping an eye on what was going on the whole time. All the other navigators were aware of what was going on. If you got severely civ- delayed or or whatever, you could always retime it by saying, time so-and-so, and everybody else would take time from that. So then we'd, we'd attack the airfield, and of course, you're going through, once you've gone through the cap, you've got the, the missile sites you're flying through. And of course, you're flying pretty low, you know, you're down... 20-30 feet so you know missiles tend to point up was not downwards no. so, <laughs> uh, so you know and so they, they had no chance really yeah. and then you, you, you came to your target so the lead guy would toss his weapon and of course the thing about tossing a weapon is that on a medium toss is that you, you toss the weapon as soon as the better weapons have gone you pull into a hard pull down 4-5G 150 degrees of bank so there's no chance for a missile you know the, the aeroplanes are moving so much and then there's a lay-down attack where you would drop a, a stick of bombs, say. The idea of a lay-down attack was that you drop, say, four bombs with a, a spacing. You never flew down the runway to, to take out a runway. You always flew about 30 degrees to it, so you can guarantee you'd maybe got one bomb on the runway. If you flew down the runway, all the bombs would go to the right or left of the runway, you see. So that's the idea of a stick of, of uh, bombs. So a lay-down attack. And then the guys who came in to do the... Uh, the, the uh, shallow angle dive bomb, it would pull up again and the airplane was moving all the time, so the chance of being shot down by missile was very remote. So they'd drop their bombs and then scoot out. The guy that had the hard time, of course, was the, was the guy doing a lay down attack. Um, and the difficult lay down was that you were limited to your height, you couldn't, you couldn't come in really low level on a lay down attack. Every weapon on an airplane or a missile, when it leaves a missile launch or when the bomb leaves the airplane, is not armed. A missile when it's launched, it's armed when it accelerates to a certain speed. On a bomb, um, a retail bomb, when you drop the bomb, there's, there's an arming vein on the back and it arms the bomb. And it needs 130 feet to arm, so you have to fly level minimum of about 150 feet. The classic example of this is in the Falklands War, I, I don't know if you remember that. The BBC showing the pictures of these A4 Skyhawks coming down the bay. and I was in Glasgow at the time, I was like flying the Monarch Airlines, I saw these pictures and as soon as I saw them I thought, I can't believe that because these airplanes were coming low and dropping their bombs and they weren't going off and they weren't going off because they were too low so thanks to the BBC of course, the audience said, oh that's great our bombs aren't going off, so what they did they changed their attack to to shallow dive bombing with £500 retard 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 bombs and that's what Tragala Sagana had anyway, you know, uh, that's a different story so anyway, so yes, so 150 feet is the minimum you can drop a thousand pound bomb from. And from there you'd reform and then you would uh, go around area, area 51, which is the most secret place in America, avoiding area 51. And we, we would come round and we would do a running break and land. We'd then go in and, and, and debrief ourselves, just the, 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 the eight of us would debrief ourselves. And then we would uh, later would go into the mass debrief and that's everybody from that, that morning, those missions were there, all the Americans were there and you'd go in there and all these guys sitting in their, their smart tailored flying suits, you know, and their, their ray bands and their bloody baseball hats, all the rest of it. And you'd go in there and you're a flying suit with great salt stains down the side and you'd stand, you'd stand up there and you'd say, this is, this is the mission we did and you'd say we, we flew low level and... Under the cap, and we went down over the hills, and we attacked the target on time, and we dropped our weapons, and we recovered back to to Nellis Air Force Base, and then they'd say to me, "Okay," uh, they asked the aggressor squadrons, "Anybody got a missile or a a, a a guns kill?" "No," and then they asked the the uh, the, the uh, missile sites, "Anybody got a missile kill?" "No," and it was great. <laughs> and the Americans, of course, they'd have gone whoop 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 because yeah. being the air force, we said. Thank you very much. I just walked away. So it was great. I mean, it, they were quite impressed with the Buccaneer. And, but the point I'm making is that you know, it wasn't just about pilots flying low level. It was, the navigators had a massive input into, into Red Flag. And I don't think they often get the, the press they deserve. You know, it was a crew aeroplane. And these guys had been flying together a lot, the crews, the, the constituted crews. And to maintain a timeline and to be able to get hit a target on time was an enormous skill. And that was down to the navigators. You couldn't have done the job without the navigator. No, 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 no. And, and uh, I say it, was, it wasn't a design for the bucket for the overland roll, the, the, the integrated weapon system. So you know they did a, a superb job. Um, so that was it. Yeah, you know, that was red flag, and we all enjoyed it. We had a bit of time down in Las Vegas, obviously, and we had a few parties, and it was, it was just a, a superb time. It was a, an opportunity to fly extremely low level and get some good results. So, once we finished Red Flag, I was still on the QDRI course and we, we had a great time. Uh, we went back to Honington and we had another week or 10 days flying our level, doing all the stuff that the guys do. And when we finished the course, John and I went back to 208 Squadron. And uh, what happened then was that uh, the, the, the weapons leader got promoted, he got moved on to being a, a flight commander, and I was asked to take over a weapons leader on the squadron. John went off in his own way, he went off to fly with, with other people. And I ended up flying with a lot of the navigators on the squadron because, obviously, as a weapons leader, I had to fly with everybody. Although I was crewed out with Al Vincent. And uh, with Al, I uh, flew 431, you know, uh, quite a few times. 431 actually flew in Red Flag. I flew it in Red Flag. Um, and then my final flight was on 431 in, on 208 squadron. So, you know, that's my final aeroplane over there. I flew on the Canberra. And this is the final Buccaneer I flew here on 208 squadron. So,
0: overall, did you enjoy your time on the Buccaneer?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, it was a most thr- thrilling experience you know, ever imagine, really. It, uh, you could do no more than we did on the Buccaneer, apart from land on an aircraft carrier, which some guys did. You know, they that went off the Navy, but I don't think I've done any more on the Buccaneer than I did. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: And how many hours did you acquire on the
1: twelve hundred, something like that. Twelve hundred, like Yeah, it was very mad. Um, with John, I like I said, Les. I did three hundred eighty missions with the uh, with the uh, three hundred missions mission with Les. I did about two hundred eighty with John. So you you know, it's, it's, you, you you fly with a guy you trust. Yeah. As a, as a crew, you know, and that's what makes the Buccaneer so successful because you fly as a constituted crew. Um, so yeah, I loved it. I say my last flight on the Buccaneer was with, with um, Al Vincent, and we. We led two F-104s to Salisbury Plain. Oh. And then we came, they, the they Dutch 104s, they, they broke off and went back to Holland. And I came back and did a bit of a fly past the airfield. Uh, one of the famous pictures. <laughs> we were, yeah. <laughs> yes, I was just descending past the tower, you know, to fly down the, the apron there. Yeah. 15, 10, 10 gear down, and then just a circuit and landed, really. But that was our last flight on a
0: Buccaneer. Brilliant. And finally, we got to hear a personal side of Ken. So, Ken, do you have any hobbies? uh yes
1: i i i I was a trained engineer so i've always been interested in engineering so i've got myself a little mg td car which i i brought back to south africa many many years ago and i've been rebuilding but i've been rebuilding it for a long time um i'm still fiddling around with it i've probably got another few months to go before it's back on the road again so that's really my main hobby i suppose also I, i i got five dogs so yeah, they, they get pretty involved with those as well, so. Is you busy? Yeah, it does yeah, yeah. Do
0: you have a
1: favourite aircraft? Well, uh, I suppose the two. Really, I know, I, the Buccaneer is my favourite aeroplane for, for the Royal Air Force, and of course I, I did thirty-three years in civil aviation with the Monarch Airlines, and I flew the seven five seven for twenty-seven years and, and the seven six seven. So I suppose the seven five seven and seven six seven are my best I enjoyed flying those. And but the Buccaneer, obviously, is, I think is my probably my most favourite aircraft. I suppose.
0: Is there
1: an aircraft you wish you could have flown? No, no. I mean, I, I, I look back to days when I, I met Kevin Mace you know, in the Merchant Navy and he was in a valley and uh, I looked to think, that well, I'd love to go to a valley and, and do that. And uh, I look back at my journey through um, the Air Force, you know, the, 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 the Nat and the, the Canberra and the Buccaneer and the Hunter, you know, and uh, I think Jensen Bodden tomorrow is, is uh, doing the last race uh, in Formula One and on his helmet he just says the journey is the reward and mm-hmm. uh, to me that sums it all up. You know, it's, it's the journey through the training, through the squadrons is the reward and I, I don't look back and think that I would uh, like to fly anything else. Yes, I'd love to I suppose lightning or all that sort of stuff but I didn't. I, d- I did the most I could do. The aeroplanes I flew uh, I, I thought it was superb. Do
0: you get to airshort?
1: Occasionally, not not very often these days unfortunately. There's not many airshows are there really. I, oh. I've been to Bronte, you know Bronte Thorpe, see the guys down there. So no, not really, no.
0: So how much do you involvement do you have with 779 and
1: 431? Well, well I try and help when I can. Obviously, I, 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 these guys put a lot of work into these airplanes and I can't do much with that. But I help them out when I can. Whatever I can do, I'll help them out yeah. with, you know. So I've, I've done a one or two things for them, you know. So uh, they do such a great job because <clears throat> aeroplanes tend to you know go into museums in London or whatever but these aeroplanes aren't in museums they are these guys have bought these aircraft they spend their own money on them and they're dragging around various air shows or whatever and kids can sit them you look over there now there are kids in the, in the buccaneer you know so it's it, it, you know maybe one of these these kids here see these aeroplanes and think yes, I want to be a pilot I want to join the air force or whatever so it inspires them to do that so I think they, they do a great great job you know Andrew and, uh, and, uh, and Darren and all the other guys as well
0: it's so it much more nice actually seeing the like, aircraft you actually flew rather than just a Canberra or a Buccaneer. The actual ones you flew must be lovely.
1: Well, I mean, it's unique. I mean, you think about it, I've uh, flew this airplane, it was the last airplane I flew in the Air Force, and the Buccaneer was the last Buccaneer I flew in the Air Force. So you can imagine, you know, it's, it's great to have them around.
0: And finally, do you ever get sick about talking about
1: airplanes? <laughs> flying airplanes are 45 years, you know, so they're uh, no, not really. Pilots never get sick of talking about flying airplanes. <laughs>
0: thanks very much for listening we hope you've enjoyed this episode and don't forget you can watch and listen to all of our other interviews at aircrewinterview.tv also please sign up to our newsletter for exclusive content prizes upcoming interviews and much more and of course go over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us grow and to become part of the team for as little as one dollar per month thank you and see you soon